I don't remember where I saw it, but I, I saw something about uh, various uh, engineering failures. And I saw one called the molasses flood. And my initial reaction was, oh, that, that's funny, a molasses flood. And so then I read more about it. And uh, my gosh, it, it wasn't funny at all. More often than not, that's what I hear from people is, it's a what? You know, when? Where? They think it's humorous, and then, you know, as they learn more details, then they, they're appalled. They say, wow. How could this happen? How could this happen? When greed or ignorance outpaces rules and regulations, tragedies can occur. And that's certainly what occurred a hundred years ago. Page six, history's forgotten headlines, destruction by molasses. This is history's forgotten headlines, and here we revisit some of America's most notorious and shocking murders, scandals, and disasters that once made headlines across the world. And now, they've not only fallen to the back pages, but almost been completely forgotten. And this is a tragedy that many believe is stranger than fiction. This is History's Forgotten Headlines. Welcome, everybody, and thank you for joining us today. This may be a forgotten headline in most parts of the U.S., but that's not the case in Boston, and specifically in the neighborhood where this tragedy happened. Anytime you have a loss of life, and particularly when there's um, you know, a mass disaster on a scale like this, um, it's important to commemorate the humanity and the lives of those individuals. On a cold January day in 2019, dozens of people showed up at the very site of the disaster, to mark the 100th anniversary. 100 years ago today, a tragedy occurred resulting in the deaths of Bostonians. And we're gathered here today to stand at the site of the 90-foot tank that collapsed, causing those deaths. The number of people attending isn't too surprising if you're familiar with Boston's North End. It's rich in history, tradition, and culture. The same neighborhood that's home to the Old North Church is the same neighborhood that's home to more than 50 Italian restaurants. Paul Revere's house is just steps away from the famous Mike's Pastry. The neighborhood is alive with charm and character and a little history of the North End here. Post-revolutionary times, the neighborhood was settled by the Irish. Then in 1890, the Irish moved out and the Italian immigrants moved in. That's what made the North End what it is today. But the vibrant pocket of Boston hasn't gone untouched by tragedy. The Great Molasses Flood of 1919. A storage tank holding more than 2 million gallons of molasses ruptured, killing nearly two dozen people and injuring more than a hundred. Yes, molasses caused death and widespread destruction. The victims ranged in age from 10 to 65 years old. When the tank ruptured, the initial wave was said to be 25 feet tall and moving at 35 miles per hour. Many of the victims weren't just killed by the impact of the steel shooting off the tank, but many suffocated in the molasses. So, how did this happen? 
set the scene a little bit, this is the man who wrote the book on the disaster. Historian and author of Dark Tide, Steve Puglio. Nothing has not changed all that much in terms of its physical shape, except for those previously rat-infested warehouse, warehouses on, um, on the war for now overly expensive condominiums. <laughs> Puglio often gives speeches on his research, and we attended one of them. So we're talking, if you took those warehouses out of the equation, we're talking about one mile of inhabitable space with about 40,000 people at the time in 1919. Um, maybe the most congested neighborhood in the United States, maybe one of the most congested neighborhoods in the entire world. One historian, not me, said it rivaled Calcutta, in, uh, India, in terms of the density of population. And at this time, there are about, of these 40,000 people, 38, 39,000, 98% of them are of Italian heritage. And the molasses tank sat on the northern edge of the neighborhood, right on the banks of the Boston Harbor. The tank was 50 feet tall, 90 feet wide. And as to why this massive tank was so close to people, well, sadly, it's pretty simple. Here's Bernard, a history enthusiast we met at the anniversary ceremony. This was a serious working community. No one's going to complain. You know, no one has the political power to speak up if you're poor Irish or predominantly now Italian in 1919 in this area to say, we don't want the tank here. And for the molasses company, it's perfect. You know, they don't care who lives here. They care about the fact that you've got, a t you know, 220 feet from us is, is right where the ship would pull in. And then it's only a mile jaunt by rail tanker on the Union Railroad um, Union Terminal Railroad by street, you know, to East Cambridge where their plant was. It's cheap. It's easy. And that tank leaked from day one. 50 foot long leaks from the top of the tank all the way down to the bottom. There's barely a whimper from the neighborhood or from any of the Boston political hierarchy. You know, it was a very, very poor neighborhood. Um, and so, you know, I mean, kids were there collecting molasses almost on a daily basis that were leaking from the tank seams, um, bringing them home, you know, as a sweetener. That's Liz Nelson Weaver. She's one of the original members of the Friends of the Boston Harbor Walk, and she's leading the effort to create a better memorial at the site of the tragedy where Little League baseball fields now stand. And what I really decided to focus on was the impact on the people. That, I felt, would be the heart of the story because I wanted so much to counter that ha-ha response. One of the victims was a 10-year-old little boy who was just, he was there, you know, at lunch break from school. And these kids were just, I think, picking up kindling for fires at home. So that's what they were doing there. The date was January 15th, 1919. The pocket of the neighborhood where the tank stood was busy. Kids close by, firefighters stationed at the nearby fireboat house, and families sitting inside their homes across the street. Then, just before noon... A huge steel tank on Boston's Commercial Street waterfront. And when I say huge, 50 feet tall, 90 feet in diameter, filled with 2.3 million gallons of molasses, uh, gives way, disintegrates, uh, collapses, use whatever word you use, but don't use explodes. We'll explain why later. So it collapses and sends um, a deluge of molasses down Commercial Street cuts about a one-mile swath of destruction. Destroys buildings, destroys animals, horses, picks up people, 
um, debris severs the main overhead train trestle from South Station to North Station. A mile-wide section of the neighborhood destroyed. The wave of molasses itself was estimated to be 25 feet high and 165 feet wide, traveling at 35 miles per hour. I mean, they say you, you couldn't outrun the initial wave, certainly is what I've heard from people. Um, yeah, I, it is. You know, I mean, I've people talk about, you know, thinking about a really, really tall wave. Well, I don't think I've seen a wave more than eight feet tall. I mean, it's nowhere close, you know. So it, it is hard to even imagine it, what that, what that must have looked like. The wave spared nothing and no one. There's a firehouse, which is on the cover of Dark Tide, about 80 feet from the tank, that uh, gets knocked off of its foundation, traps people underneath. Um, and there's really massive destruction. There are 21 people killed in the flood, 150 people injured, many of them very, very seriously. Um, you know, broken backs and broken pelvises and fractured skulls and those kinds of things. Very, very serious injuries. Now, before we get into the victims, I want you to get a full grasp of the moment the tank ruptured. The actual structure of the tank when it blew apart, that also in itself killed people. Um, you know, that the, the rivets were like bullets, you know, because all these rivets popped. It feels like too mild a word. You know, they blew off of there um, and they were like projectiles. And not just projectiles. But one engineering expert said the moment those rivets blew off, it likely sounded like a machine gun. When riveted uh, plates uh, are pulled apart, not just uh, uh, big tanks, but uh, the, the rivets pop out, and they pop out with a loud noise. And so if you're ripping out a number of uh, riveted plates at the same time, then you'll get that machine gun sound. That's the expert, Mark Rosso. I'm a retired professor of civil engineering at Southern Illinois University, Edwardsville, that's near St. Louis. He studied the molasses flood from an engineering perspective and understands just how horrible of a situation this was for so many people. Oh, yeah, 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 it's just horrible to think about that. Um, you know, 21 people died, and in a sense, the, I guess about half of them died that very day, and in a sense, they were the lucky ones. They were killed by the impact of the molasses wave throwing them against uh, buildings and on the ground. But the, the unlucky ones were people who got molasses in their lungs and then had their lung infections and then they had a slow death where they just lost their ability to breathe over a period of weeks. I and mean, it, just, it just makes me shiver to think about that. And just as a warning, this next part can get a little gory. Puglio wrote in detail about those horrible deaths, which Bernard details for us. In particular, uh, Pasquale in Tosca was 10 years old. Um, he was identified in part because, you know, his parents had had him wearing two sweaters that day, and they saw him. He was caught between a wall and a freight car, and the, the molasses picked up the freight car and smashed him, and, you know, they pick him up, and, like, his bones are moving in him. Yeah, just immense forces. The girders supporting the... Um elevated railroad. Steel girders were bent. There was, there was that much force. You can just imagine what it takes to bend a, a, a steel girder. 
just total destruction. Homes were ripped off their foundations, freight cars were tossed around, all by molasses. The victims included children, city workers, firefighters, and residents. Bridget Cl- Clarity, for example, um, the Clarity House um, was right, right here, just roughly. Um, okay. There was kind of a gap right there in these two buildings. Um, and the house was pulled back out of its foundation. So first it's smashed by this 25-foot wave of molasses traveling at 35 miles an hour. That's how fast it was moving. It was moving fast. And they were trying to describe, you know, afterwards how, how much damage that did. And what Damon Hall, the, um, the prosecuting attorney, said was, you know, picture, you know, 1,100 steam engines or 1,100, you know, one-ton Ford trucks in a circle, flying in every direction. You know, that's the kind of stuff we're dealing with. So the house was ripped off its foundations and pulled and bundled and and crushed, and she was horribly injured. All either killed by the blunt force trauma from the steel or suffocating in the molasses. It wasn't even just drowning, like in water. It was that, you know, (laughs) it was just an awful, awful way to die. In the end, 21 people died. Patrick Breen, William Brogan, Bridget Clarity, Stephen Clarity, John Callahan, Maria D'Estacio, William Duffy, Peter Francis, Flamino Gallerani, Pasquale Ian Tosca. James H. Keneally, Eric Laird, George Leahy, James Lennon, Ralph Martin, James McMullen, Caesar Niccolo, Thomas Noonan, Peter Shaughnessy. John Sieberleach, Michael Sinnott. How could it possibly be that a tank that size was built right at the edge of a congested neighborhood, right next to a playground, right next to where the floating Boston hospital was tied up, for the entire season and where children and mothers loaded on and off every single day in the summer, how could they build this colossal thing there, you know, that could be such a potential danger? And that was before I even heard about how badly it was built and that it leaked from the get-go and all those other pieces where it became really clear that it was corporate negligence. You know, at first it was like, well, that's awful that they even put it there. How awful that it, you know, fell apart. But then it was like, oh, there's even more to this story. Liz is right. There's a lot more to this story. Now, in regards to the purpose of the tank, Pulio sums it up pretty clearly. That molasses is the raw material that's used in industrial alcohol, which in peacetime, think of things like dyes and turpentines and paint thinners, things like that. But during the First World War, 
Molasses was the raw material that was processed into industrial alcohol and then further processed and used in the production of munitions for the First World War. Nitroglycerin, TNT. So molasses was a protected and very vibrant and busy war industry. Now, as to why the tank was built in the North End, essentially, it was right on the harbor and the neighborhood was filled with poor immigrants. Because the majority of the neighborhood wasn't citizens, they had very little to say about what went on there. So when the tank is sighted right on the outskirts of the neighborhood, there's barely a whimper, I would say, from the neighborhood itself, from the Boston political hierarchy, um, or from anyone in any kind of authority. And even after the disaster, there's a couple of days of outrage, but not very much. There's very, very little in that way. So when you think of this kind of a project, this kind of a, a construction project, this kind of material that's captured with, encapsulated within this tank. Um, don't be thinking it's like today, where there would be, you know, hearing after hearing after hearing, and neighborhoods and you know, butters being reached out to, and boards of appeals that you needed to go to, etc. Um, no such thing. This tank was sighted quickly, built quickly, built in a very shoddy fashion, and the immigrants of the neighborhood had very little to say about it. And he means shoddy. So that's why we brought in the engineering experts to explain and dig into that even further. You have to have people who to be, have to have them behave responsibly. If they, if, they, if they have engineering knowledge and don't use it, if they don't take these signals coming from the leaking tank, that's not really a technical problem. That, that's a personal responsibility problem. It's a huge one. Now, you remember Mark Rosso. Well, we also spoke with Ron Mayville. As Ron puts it, he's a mechanical engineer by education and also does structural engineering. Now, he's also really interested in the molasses flood, which works out perfect for us. About, I don't know, six or seven years ago, I, for some reason, I got renewed interest in the subject and I really decided to, to, to dive in deeply. Um, ordering technical papers on the subject and going to the Suffolk uh, Law Library where they have the transcripts from the hearing that took place after the accident. He also said he's read about 8,000 pages of those transcripts, so a lot of what he'll be saying here comes directly from court documents. Listen to what he says about the moment the tank gave way and one other crazy piece about that moment. A characteristic of brittle fracture is that things unzip very quickly. The speed that the crack propagates is like 1,000 feet per second. It's really traveling very, very fast. Now, if you missed that, he said 1,000 feet per second. It's almost as though the tank walls probably just disappeared in some ways. Uh, then you had this huge uh, flood of molasses. And here's the crazy part. Listen closely, because remember, there's more to the story. There was a six-ton piece of the tank found 200 feet away in the playground? That's right, yep. How and does they, that even happen? Well, and that, the, that uh, fact was used by the defense as evidence that there was an explosion. Remember, the, the, um, the owner of the tank was claiming that there was an explosion inside the tank set off by anarchists, um, and the other side was just saying that the tank was faulty, badly designed. So the defense claimed that the fact that this very large piece was so far away was evidence of an explosion. They even had an expert uh, calculate the um, parabolic path that this thing would have taken through the air to land at that location. 
But I think there's a significant amount of evidence, and I've even done simulations, that the molasses, the flow of the molasses alone could have pushed that piece as far away as it went. And I think that's what happened. Like he said, in a subsequent trial, the company that owned the tank argued it was blown up by anarchists because the tank was considered a federally protected area. So they thought someone was coming after the government. Well, thanks to our engineering experts, we know that is definitely not the case. Now, more than ever. This is a clear case of negligence. Uh, a number of the disasters I've looked at uh, are, are not negligence. There are examples where we expect way too much of people. People, we expect them to know what we know after the, after the disaster has occurred. And we now know where to look. But in many cases, people didn't know where to look for these, uh, a, a problem. Um, if, if you read my paper, you've seen how the, the company treasurer was, was brought mm-hmm. some pieces of metal. And from a, from a laborer brought them from the tank and said, hey, look at this. These fell off the tank. Oh, shouldn't we be um, concerned about this? And, and his answer was to the effect of this, the, the tank still stands. I mean, my goodness. Uh, and then also um, kids in the neighborhood take cans and push them against the tank and then fill them. With molasses, then they take the molasses home. I mean, what, what, how can people just ignore that, the people in charge? Like the speaker at the beginning said, when greed or ignorance outpaces rules and regulations, tragedies can occur. You know, the, the stresses, the calculations, the stresses uh, that were done for the tank, or perhaps were not done, uh, didn't even meet the standards in a 1913 textbook, it's a different matter to say, well, the designer didn't meet the standards of 2019. Yeah, we can't expect them to know then what we know now. But the designers, uh, such as they were, didn't even follow the, the 1913 textbook. The tank was under-designed. There were requirements, both for the Boston Building Code and in general engineering, about what the allowable stresses are in the tank. And if you look at the design, very simple calculation. It shows that the metal thickness was too low to meet those requirements. The more important thing that Mayville pointed out, I don't think anybody else had, uh, is that there was apparently a brittle fracture. And what happened was that steel, certain kinds of steel, undergo a ductile to brittle transition. So uh, ductile, so you you think of a... uh, Tupperware container, that would be ductile. You can bend that and it springs back, or it won't break when you deform it. And steel will behave that at a higher temperature, and as the temperature drops, then the steel will behave in a brittle manner, and now think of a glass. When you drop it on the kitchen floor, it shatters. And so the material itself, the steel, undergoes this transition. And Mayville pointed out, uh, he estimated, that the transition temperature for that steel of that day, you know, the guy actually did a really like good work. He looked up the, the manganese content of the steel. He got that information. And he said, well, it could be that the, the tank had undergone a ductile to brittle failure with the temperature ranges involved. The brittleness of uh, steel is uh, dependent upon the temperature. So... You know, the higher the temperature, the less likely it is to be brittle, and the colder the temperature, the more likely it is to be brittle. So 40 degrees was in a zone where the material would behave in a brittle manner, and I've done some research on that. I think that that's the main contributing factor it had. 
and the, the uh, tank was full to the brim, and there, you know it had been fill, filled only four times in its lifetime. But uh, a tanker had come in two days earlier from Puerto Rico and filled the the uh, tank with molasses, and that really loaded the tank. And with the, the low temperature and the, now the, the brittle seal, and then a crack grew from the um, from the rivet holes, spread all the way across the bottom of the tank, and that's what led to the failure. The final push was that it had been filled almost to capacity a couple times, and the, and it's true that it was filled to a greater capacity than it, it was at the time of failure, slightly. Um, but I think that these uh, filling and unfilling, even though there were not that many cycles of that, I think there were about 30, was enough to sharpen a little crack at one of the rivet holes to get it to start to propagate. So I think the structure was on the edge to begin with. And it was just, you know, through these filling and unfilling and the combination of maybe a cooler temperature that was just enough to push it over the edge. As for that lawsuit, it was big. One of the largest civil lawsuits uh, still in Massachusetts history where 119 plaintiffs go up against one of the large industrial alcohol users in the United States. Pulio writes it was David versus Goliath, the families of immigrants and city workers taking on a major corporation, 119 plaintiffs and nearly a thousand witnesses. During the trial, it was discovered that the only testing done to the tank before putting it into use was filling it with six inches of water. Then they decided that was good enough to fill with more than two million gallons of molasses. In the end, the court ruled against the company and its anarchist theory and determined the tank collapsed due to structural weakness. The company paid about a million dollars in total to the families of those who were killed and injured. Now, in today's money, that would be about a hundred million dollars. So that means the families only got about the equivalent of a hundred thousand dollars each. And that really seemed to be not enough. And, uh... As far as I know, nobody went to jail. And that, that's, that was disturbing. And now, more than 100 years later. Beneath our feet, about 20 inches down, um, the foundations of that tank still remain. And so do the haunting memories. When I was at Steve Pulio's BPL presentation on the anniversary of, or the 100 year anniversary of it, um, the person standing behind me, um, his grandfather was one of the firemen in the firehouse uh, during the tragedy. And so we chatted for, you know, several minutes. And I think what was really interesting was that the, the grandson said that his grandfather never talked about it. And I, I think I asked, well, you know, why do you think that was? And his conclusion seemed to be that, well, you know, it had sort of, it was a long time ago, it faded from memory. I, you know, I don't know him or his grandfather, but I would tend to guess otherwise. Um, I would tend to guess that it was such an absolutely horrific experience that he, he didn't want to go back to it. He didn't want to talk about it because he didn't want to, you know, anybody who's gone through really, a lot of people who go through really traumatic experiences do not want to talk about them. And I imagine it fell into that. Now many still say to this day, 
when the weather is just warm enough in the North End, you can still smell molasses. And we'll leave you with that. I'm Justin Doherty, and while the headlines may be forgotten, just don't forget about us. Now that'll wrap it up for now on these longer versions of History's Forgotten Headlines. Coming up, we're going to have some short stories, so that way you can have the same quality of Forgotten Headlines, just a little more quantity. We'll see you soon.